thank you, brother, for leading us in worship. Thank you, Mark Mills, for that prayer. Appreciate that. Speaking of prayer, please bow with me. I'd like us to start there this morning and ask God to help us. I think we all would freely admit we need and want that help this morning. So will you bow with me? Father, we come here, of course, into this building with a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different situations, and Lord, uh, even some distractions more than likely. So Father, I pray that you would please help us to focus rightly and help us to be here this morning. Father, we pray that you are, as Seth said, preparing our hearts to receive this truth and that you would open our hearts and that you would please help us. Father, we want to be like Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this word this morning to help us to that end. We love you very much. We pray this in Christ's perfect name. Amen. Well, let me also wish you a happy new year. And uh, January is a month I've always chosen for us to refocus on prayer, um, talking about prayer more than we normally do, praying more than we normally do for the purpose of starting the new year rightly. We want to line our hearts up with God's. We know that prayer is completely undervalued. <laughs> um, undervalued in our world and even undervalued in our lives, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, right? Um, but Prayer is a wonderful gift and a wonderful means that we have to connect with our God in a more focused and a more direct way. It is a direct line of contact with our God, and what a gift that is. I know we usually go to God in prayer concerning certain situations, that he would change them. That's, I would say that's one of the main reasons we go to God in prayer is, Lord, I've got this problem, or Lord, there's a situation that I'm in. Would you, would you change the situation? Would you make it different than what it is? And that's not a bad reason to go to God in prayer. Not at all. But deep, lasting change usually happens not when the situation changes, but when your heart changes. Isn't that right? That's when deep, lasting change happens. When your heart changes. So I, I want to use the books of Ezra and Nehemiah this year to help us study and learn about prayer and about the God we're praying to. I've titled the series, the whole series that we're going to do for the month, I've titled it Ezra, Nehemiah, Rebuilding Through Prayer. Ezra, Nehemiah, Rebuilding Through Prayer. Do we have that up there? Well, I, I made a slide for you guys. There, there it is. Ezra, Nehemiah, Rebuilding Through Prayer. I just want to make sure that got shown. I worked, you know, I worked a while on that. Five minutes at least. So I want to make sure it got some recognition. Not me, but the slide. Um, the sermon this morning is going to be focused on praying God will change hearts. Praying God will change hearts. That's where we're going to focus a lot of our attention this morning. So in our modern Bibles, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they are two separate books. But did you know that originally they were one? It's one continuous book with one author. We've just separated them in our modern Bibles just for convenience sake, really. But chronologically, these books took place around 550 years before Jesus. So 550 years before Jesus comes on the scene... 
is when we are in these books, is when this is happening. So that's where it happens as far as where the Bible goes. And the narrative of Ezra, Nehemiah, begins with the Babylonians. The Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, and taken the people away into Babylon, as you might recall. Ezra, uh, the book of Ezra, picks up roughly 50 years after the, after the people are um, freed and they're allowed to go back into the land that they were taken from. And so that's what's happening. You might recall why that even happened. The Lord God gave his people everything that they needed to follow him. The law, the land, the high priest, the temple, all that. And he basically said, obey me and you will receive blessing. However, do not disobey me. Do not follow after the ways of the people around you that are following all these false gods. You will go into wickedness and unrighteousness and you will be cursed because of that. And if you persist in it, which they did, he said, I will raise up a nation to come and invade you and they will carry you off into exile. But he even gave them hope within that. He said, but if you, if you repent and you turn from me, I mean, turn back to me. That won't happen. I will rescue you. I will not allow this calamity to come upon you. They did not return to the Lord, as you might recall. They were a stiff-necked and stubborn people, like us. (laughs) And God raised up the Babylonians to invade them and carried the people off in three different waves. It happened in three waves into exile. You know the book of Daniel. You've heard of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All that happened in Babylon. That's why they're there. And so all of this, Ezra, Nehemiah, it's taking place as the people are allowed to return back and rebuild things. And so if you want kind of an outline of these books, a very simple outline is this. The books really focus on three different leaders. You've got Zerubbabel, which is, it's hard to say his name. I might just call him Zeru because it just, he, he trips me up. The double B's in the middle trip me up. Then you've got Ezra, and then you've got Nehemiah. And that's sort of if you want to divide the books into three chunks, you can do that with these three leaders. And each of these three leaders focuses on rebuilding a different aspect of Israel. So let's talk about that. Zeru, we're just going to call him that, uh, he is actually a governor. And he focuses on the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra is a spiritual leader, and he focuses on rebuilding the people of God using the Torah, the Word of God. Rebuilding the people. And then Nehemiah. He was originally a cupbearer to this king named Artaxerxes. But he becomes a governor among the people of Israel. And he focuses on the rebuilding of the walls. So if you want to just keep it very simple, uh, that's how you can think about the, the layout and the flow of these books. Though we won't be focusing on everything about these books, we will be learning some of the themes um, as we see prayer interwoven throughout these books throughout this narrative. We'll learn more about prayer as we see how these people prayed and how God worked in response to their prayers 
based on his promises as well. So this is going to be a good, a good study for us because it focuses so much on rebuilding, rebuilding a temple, rebuilding a people, rebuilding walls. We'll draw principles on rebuilding as well from these books, rebuilding through biblical prayer. That's what I really want to focus on is praying biblically. How do we do that? And can we do that? Yes, we can, as we focus on the right things. So, speaking of being biblical, let's get to the Bible. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Ezra 1, 1 through 6 is where we're going to be. So if you have your Bible, turn there or on your device. And let me read that to us. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put into writing, this is what he wrote, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, um, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever's among you of all his people, May his God be with him, and let him go up to, oh, sorry, this is not flowing on my tongue this uh, well this morning, Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of the place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses and of Judah and Benjamin, priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God stirred up that he might rebuild the house of the Lord. So the rest of the text talks about people giving the gold and the silver to them, which reminds us of something we're going to talk about later. It reminds us of something that happened in the book of Exodus as well. But where I want to start our focus is this, because verse 1, Verse 1 may be a bit confusing if you know very little about any of this, and that's okay. I was once there as well, so let me make sure we all sort of get up to speed here. In the first year of King of Cyrus, king of Persia, you might say, okay, wait a second. I thought we were talking about the Babylonians. I thought, I thought, they, were, I thought they were captured by the Babylonians and now getting sent back. What's this king of Persia all about. I've heard of Persia before. Maybe isn't there a movie about the prince of Persia? These things, right? Where does this fit in? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar was king in Babylon, but he didn't stay king forever. You know why? You know how it worked? Kind of how it works nowadays even. Whoever's got the most power and the biggest stick can then take over and become leader if you're not strong enough to withstand them. And that's what happened. The Persians came, and they beat the Babylonians. And so now what's going on is we've got this new king, Cyrus, king of Persia. He's defeated the Babylonians, and now he has control of what they own. What did they own? They, also, they owned a lot of Israelites because they took them captive and took them, in, took them into exile. And so what we see now is this king, Cyrus, he says, well, since I'm the boss of everything that was his, you guys can go back. And we see that this actually, it says, 
in verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Something then happens. All right, so now we've got this guy, Jeremiah, in the mix as well. Who was he? Well, he was a prophet. He was a prophet in the Old Testament who prophesied while the Babylonians were right on the doorstep. They were just about to come. And God sent him to say to the people of Judah, hey, they're coming if you don't repent. If you don't repent, these people are going to come and invade you. However, there's hope. You can repent and turn, and it won't happen. But please, know this. They're coming because of your wickedness. And they came. But, like that little jewel of hope that's in almost all the prophets, you can read almost, it's, it's in almost every single book of the prophets in the Old Testament. There's this little jewel of hope built in. It's like buried in all their messages. It's fun to look for them, actually. It's fun to look for the little jewel of hope that's in all of these messages. Because when you find it, you say, wow, look at that. He's offering them escape. Just like he does for you. In your temptations, in your downslides, he says, repent. Turn to me. Forsake your sin. Come back to me. I'll place that punishment that was supposed to land on you, I'll place it upon Jesus Christ. Because that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to bear the punishment for sinners that you and I deserve. And I use that word intentionally because you and I do deserve it. There's no one in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. No one. But there's no one in heaven who does deserve to be there. Do they? The only one who's made it so that we can be there is the one Jesus Christ. He was the perfect law keeper. Never sinned a day in his life. He was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God placed your punishment on him so that you can be saved. And he took it. He shed his blood and he died. But then he rose again the third day, proving that the price was paid. Proving that he lives forever never to die again. So that's the hope that we have. That's the hope of the gospel. That little gem of hope. It's a big gem now. It's in every page almost of the Bible, isn't it? When you look really hard, you can see it everywhere. And that's the big gem of hope that I'm holding out to you today. If you don't know him, you can know him. And those of you who do know him, you know good and well. That's what you bank everything on, is what Jesus did for you. And so... That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. God said through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, that's where you find that little gem of hope. 29, we find it especially in verse 14. It says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So God made a promise to the people, I'll bring you back. If you choose to disobey me and these people come and invade you, I'll bring you back. I will. And so what do we see? We start Ezra off with this. We start Ezra off with hope. God's keeping his word. He is bringing the people back. There's hope because when we left the people of Israel last, they were... (laughs) 
They were, they were getting their spanking, and it looked bad. And they were in Babylon for a total of 70 years. It doesn't look so good. Then this comes along, and we say, huh, what? God's keeping his word to bring the people back. And how does he do it? How does he do it? That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. It says, this is Ezra 1.1, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom. Who is ultimately responsible for this king deciding to do what he did? Well, the text tells us the Lord stirred him up. The Lord stirred up his heart. And then we see in verse 2, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house. So this king is saying, The Lord charged me to build him a house. Why? Because God stirred his heart up to do it. Why? Because God promised he would bring the people back. God is the initiator of this. Do you see that? How did he do it? Through a king, yes. But why did the king do it? Because God did click in his heart. God made his heart to want to do that. That's what the text tells us. I'm not doing any crazy backflips here with the text, am I? This is exactly what it says. And then if we go down to verse 5, we see something like this again. Ezra 1, 5 now. Then rose up the heads of the fathers... Houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of God. Why did certain people go up to do it and not others? Because not all of them went back, by the way. They didn't all say, yay, let's go. Because why? (laughs) Jerusalem was in ruins. If you were getting up to leave Babylon, to go back, it meant you've got a lot of work on your hands. Like You're going back kind of like the settlers. It would be sort of like the settlers did here in, the, in America. They were just going west, and they were saying, well, there's land out there, but we have to make it be what it's going to be. We're not going to fortified buildings and stores We're going to have to go out there, and it's going to be a lot of hard work. And so not everybody was up for this. Not everybody was up for this. Some of them were like, no, I mean, we've had a pretty good life here in Babylon. Let's just stay. I've got good work. I'm okay with this. So not all of them went back, but some did. And why? Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go. There was a man that woke up one morning and said, sweetie, let's go back. Why did that man do it? God stirred him up. There was a couple, newly married, and they said, we should should go back. Why did they do that? God stirred them up. God changed the heart. Maybe you're thinking, Cohen, this is well and good. What the heck does this have to do with prayer? (laughs) I thought this was about prayer, right? Oh, I'm glad the uh, Harrisons aren't here because I've learned their parents don't let them say what the heck. And so that would have been totally offensive to those kids. They would have been like, oh, the pastor said what the heck. 
<laughs> so it's good that they're not here, I guess. Whoops. And if that offends you, I'm, I'm sorry. I was just trying to make a point. But I don't want to cause anyone to stumble if you're also not allowed to say that in your home. So what does this have to do with prayer? What this has to do with prayer is I want to teach you to pray biblically that God would change hearts. And God can change hearts because like we sang about this morning, He's sovereign over us, even sovereign over the heart of man. Where do I get that? From Scripture, which I'll show you in just a second. But let's remember, because there's something happening here, something that's a really big deal that the people are going back to rebuild, right? This is huge. This is the people going back to the land that God had promised, promised them originally to be the people of God again, to rebuild a temple even again, to be the Israelites in Israel again. This is big. Something as big as when God kept his promise to, de- to deliver the people from Egypt. Egypt was the world power at that time and had enslaved the people of Israel for 400 years. And God, with a mighty hand, we're told, through those 10 plagues, delivered his people and took them out and took them to a good land eventually. It took a lot longer. Why? Well, because of their sinfulness. But God did his part in delivering them. And as they were leaving, we read about in Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, 33 through 36, it says, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They were like, please leave, because these plagues keep falling on us and hurting us and killing us. Get out, please. Go Away, for they said, we shall all be dead. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up and their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And then verse 36 says this of Exodus 12, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked for. Why did the Egyptians do this? The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians would not have done this if the Lord hadn't done something in the Egyptians' heart to make them say, it's a good idea for us to give them gold and silver. God is the one credited with them doing that. And it's interesting that when Cyrus says, go back and rebuild He also says, and all those of you who want to help them out, give them gold and silver. This is is meant to remind us of this. This going back to the land is as significant as when God took the people out of Egypt. We know one way that God did that too was he hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Again, God can change the heart of man. Yes, it also says Pharaoh hardened his own heart too. It absolutely does. So let's keep talking about this then. Should we pray that God changes the heart? Well, you should have gotten a handout. If you didn't get a handout, don't worry. You can just listen. But let's look at a few of these things. Let's, Let's look at a few of these other examples in Scripture 
where we see God affecting the heart of man. We see here, the first one, I say God can touch the heart. 1 Samuel 10, 26. So Saul is, um, is king, and God is doing some things around Saul with prophets to prophesy and also to get people favorable towards Saul to help him as king. And what do we see here? 1 Samuel 10, 26. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. And the emphasis is here, God touched their hearts, and that made them want to connect themselves with Saul, this man that God had made king. Now, was Saul a perfect king? No. Did he eventually get replaced by David? Yes. But to start off with, God touched men's hearts. And those men, at that point, said, we throw our lot in with Saul. Why did they do that? God touched their hearts. Next, God can turn hearts back to him, I say. 1 Kings 18, 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O king, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That you have turned their hearts back. He says, answer me, God. I want you to answer me. And I want you to do something here so that the people will know that you have turned their hearts back. When their hearts had turned back to the Lord, away from idols, away from following false gods, they should know, God did this. God brought us back to him. And that's what he was praying here. God can make people of one heart. Look at this, Second Chronicles 30, 12. The hand of God was also on Judah, that means the people of Judah, not the man Judah. This group of people were called the tribes of Judah. There were two of them. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. God is credited here with making the people united. God is credited here with giving them one Heart. What does that mean when, 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 if I was to say, let's have one heart about this? Well, of course I mean, let's be united, right? Let's all agree on this. And what did they all agree on? They all agreed on obeying the word of the Lord. But why? Why did they do that? You know, motives are a big deal, right? Motives are a really big deal. Like for example, John Piper has this illustration where he says, if I showed up at the door with all these roses and then my wife opens the door, ta-da, and she says, oh, thank you. And he says, well, that's my duty. Okay, that just totally lost its meaning. Why? Because she learned his motive was to just fulfill a duty, not to do this because I love you. And it would, I'm just so pleased to make you happy. I saw these and I thought about you and I wanted to give them to you because I love you so much. That's what she's wanting. But then when he says, well, it's my duty. See, motive is important, isn't it? Motive is very important. 
It can make an act lovely or <laughs> you're sleeping outside tonight, right? Motive's a big deal. And so really we're talking about why people do things. Why did these people unite and say, we want to obey God now? Well, this text tells us, because God. God united their hearts. God made them of one heart. Look at this. This is a really big one. God gives a new heart when he saves a man. So Ezekiel 36 is this uh, promise of the new covenant, this, this, this promise that God's going to bring about a different covenant that's better than the old covenant. And he calls it the new covenant. It's connected, in fact, with Jeremiah's prophecy. These two prophets talk about the same thing. And he says this in Ezekiel 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. He talks about taking out the heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, a living heart. And that's salvation. He's talking about what he will do under the new covenant to save a man. He says, I, I God, change his heart. I change the heart of man. That's what he said. So we pray that for people, that God will change their heart. We pray that God will make people of one heart. We can pray that God will turn hearts back to people. We can pray that God can touch a heart. And this is all biblical. We can pray for these things. And we should pray for these things is what I'm trying to convince you of. Pray that God moves in and touches and changes and unites hearts. We can pray these things. God opens the heart to believe. Look at Acts. Now we're going to the New Testament. In Acts 16, this is, this is pretty incredible. I really love this portion of Scripture. So Acts is on one of his... Uh, Acts. Paul, in Acts, is on one of his mission trips. And he's going and he's preaching. And at one point, he preaches to this group of women. And God does something in the hearts of one of the women. Look what it says in Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You might say, well, it already says she was a worshiper of God, so what's the big deal that God opened her heart? That phrase, worshiper of God, Sometimes is used just in place to say she was like, she was a Jew. She was already like a devout Jew, but had not yet latched on to Jesus. Had not yet understood that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and that he came to fulfill all this. So the fact that Paul is now preaching to the Jews, hey, Jesus is your Messiah. Jesus is the one who fills all the Old Testament scriptures. And he, should, he, should, he can say, and I know because I saw him. He witnessed, he, he appeared to me and convinced me of these things. And he had the message of the gospel on his lips, Paul did. And the Lord opens her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Father, please open hearts that people will pay attention to the gospel being preached. That they'll pay attention to the truth God can do that. God 
opens hearts. And all those of you in this room who were saved, did you open your own heart one day? Did you think, you know, today I'll care about what I'm hearing here on the radio, or I'll, I'll care more about what I'm reading here in the Bible, or, you know, I'll care about what the pastor's saying. I'm just choosing to care more today, and I think I'm going to just reach in and just change my heart. I'm, I think I'm going to open it up. No, you didn't do that. If you're saved, it's because God did a work in your heart. He did it, and he still does it. He opens the heart for people to believe. I love this text, and I pray often for God to open people's hearts. Why do I pray that? Because of this text. And you should too. Next, God shines light and knowledge into the heart. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's, what's that a quote from? Genesis 1, right? He's going all the way back to creation with this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God shines light and knowledge into the heart. This is a, this is a living book. This is a, we call it even sometimes the living word. Jesus said, my words are spirit and they're life. When this truth goes in and affects and changes your heart and shines in you, it does that because of what God is doing. God is causing it to do that. Again, it's similar to what I said earlier about your heart. God is the one who's shining it into our heart hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Do we participate with God at all in these things? Of course we do, and I'm not saying that. I don't emphasize one truth to de-emphasize another truth, no. The scriptures also tell us to repent. The scriptures also tell us to believe. The scriptures also tell us to turn from wickedness, right? The scriptures also tell us to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. The scriptures tell us to flee from temptation. All those things are true as well. But so are these. I'm, I'm, I'm upholding all truth, not saying one's better than another or one totally um, extinguishes another. No. Just these things are also true, and so we should pray them. Speaking of repentance, do you want to know why one day, those of you who are saved, do you want to know why you repented that day? You ever thought, why, why that day and not another day? Look at Acts eleven eighteen. This is when Peter had just witnessed to a bunch of Gentiles, a gentleman named Cornelius and his household, invited Peter to come over and share the truth with them because they were hungry to hear the truth. Peter does. They get saved in Acts chapter 10. It's just this massive outpouring of the Spirit of God on these Gentiles. <laughs> and so Peter comes back, he and some of his friends, with this news. And this is what they say in Acts eleven eighteen. 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted 
repentance that leads to life. God granted them repentance that leads to life. A little more commentary on that is found in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. Paul, writing to Timothy here. Timothy, who's he? A young church leader back in that day. And he's telling him things that need to be true about a church leader. If someone's going to be a leader in a church, these things need to be true about him. And we get a little bit more information about repentance also and where it comes from. Look at this. And the Lord's servant, that's like a, a church leader, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Father, please grant repentance so that people can escape the snare of the devil. Do that, Lord, please, in our lives. So look what it says. Be a leader like this. God may grant them repentance. We use the word grant sometimes. What is a, a grant? Something that you've been given, right? Like if I was to say, no one speaks this way, but if I was to say, I grant you to do this. What's that mean? It means I'm letting you. I'm allowing it. I'm going to cause it to be so, right? He's saying, be this kind of leader. If you are, in fact, like that, godly, Christ-like, walking in the ways of the Word of God, God may perhaps grant your, opponent, your opponents, He may grant them repentance, give them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Why did you repent one day to be saved? Why did you do that? God did it. God caused it to be so in your heart. So what I want us to do is I want us to pray this way. I want you to pray this way about other people's hearts, but also about your heart. The longer I'm a Christian, the more clearly I see my sin. The longer that I'm a Christian, the more I see why I need Jesus. You'd think it'd be the other way around, right? You'd think it'd be like, the longer you're a Christian, the holier you are and the closer you are to Christ-likeness and all that. And, and yes. But I can remember when I first got saved. Oh, this, isn't, this is just embarrassing. But I, but, but I do remember struggling with this. I just remember thinking, boy, I'm just, I'm just, I'm holy now. It's just, look how holy I am. <laughs> and then pride comes before a what? Fall. Exactly. Exactly. Pride comes before a fall. And I remember thinking, look how good I am. Because compared to how I was, guys, <laughs> compared to how I was when God saved me, there was a dramatic turnaround. And then, of course, the flesh took over, and I was like saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to just be super holy and be, I got very legalistic and wanted to keep all these rules. And then, as you know, legalism feeds rule-keeping, and those rule-keeping that makes you look around at others who aren't keeping rules and think, oh, look how much better I am than them because they're not keeping these rules. And I struggled with that at first. And thank God he put my face in the mud because when I fell, I needed it. I needed to be humbled. And I started realizing, no, Cohen, 
You're not that good. You need Jesus daily. Daily you need Jesus. Daily you need to repent. Daily he's helping me see my heart for what it really is without him. Desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. We sing that song, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That man who wrote that hymn, he'd been a Christian for a while. How do I know that? Because he understood his heart. God can change the heart, but you know, let's also pray about God changing our heart. I want you to pray that God will change your loved one's hearts, loved ones that you know don't know Jesus yet, co-workers that you know don't know Jesus yet. I want you to pray that God would grant them repentance. I want you to pray that God would do like he did to Lydia, that he would open their hearts so that they would receive the truth of the gospel. I want you to pray that. Friends, neighbors, co-workers, relatives, please pray that. I also want you to pray, though, about your own heart, that he would unite your heart Make you have one heart with the people of God. One heart. Don't you want that? I was thinking about the body of Christ this morning. I was thinking about how we're all so different. Uh, in the body, he's given us all these different gifts. And praise God for that. We need them. But I was thinking about it in the context of sometimes people, because I'm the pastor of the church, um, one of the elders, I think about how sometimes the people will put the pastor sort of up on a pedestal and kind of think that, Hey, he's, he's the one. He's, he, he's our pastor. And look at him. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, no, I don't, I don't want people to view me that way. I want to remind everyone that we're a part of a body. And hi, I need you. Yes, I'm a leader, but guess what? I need help in that too, right? I, I need help. And so I love the fact that I'm a part of a body and we all function together. I need you and you need me. And neither one of us is more important than the other. No. That's what Paul had a whole chapter about to the church at Corinth. The hand shouldn't say to the head and the, I mean, the, the hand shouldn't say to the foot and the foot shouldn't say to the ear, I'm, I, I don't need you. So I want us to be praying, of course, that God changes hearts and I want also God praying, I want us praying that God would make us of one heart too. Because I want that in our church. Just we're united. And praise God, I love this church. We're just so, we are very united. And I remember when Ashley Heath came here, she said, the reason why I wanted to stay at this church, because she visited like three others before ours, because she said, I could tell people loved each other here. And I was like, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus for that. Because I can't create that. God creates that. So pray that we'll be of one heart. Pray that hearts get turned back to him. Like had to be prayed in 1 Kings, that hearts will be turned back. You know some people that have, for whatever reason, at one time they were very dedicated, they were following, they were reading their Bibles daily and coming to church very often and something's just happened. Usually not because of anything that they're necessarily doing, but because of a lot of things they're not doing. Pray that God will bring them back. God can touch a heart. He can turn a heart. He can make people of one heart. 
He can give a new heart. He opens the heart. He shines light in the heart. And he grants repentance to the heart. God is responsible for all these things in Scripture. So church, I want you to pray that way. I want to challenge you this week to pray. If you're here, you got the handout. If you didn't, it's back on that back table. I want you to go through these this week, please, and just pray one or two of them. Maybe you don't pray like this very often. I want to encourage you, pray like this. Pray for God to move in the heart. But this is where I want you to start, though. I want you to start with your heart, okay? I want you to pray that he'll start in your heart. Then after you've prayed that, then move on to him working in other hearts, okay? That's my loving challenge to you this week, all right? I want to share something. I'm going to pray now to close this out, but I'll share something else before we take the Lord's Supper, especially about this new covenant. Because the people went back to Israel, and they rebuilt the temple. But then they were stopped in rebuilding the temple for a long time. Opposition came up, and they were allowed to finish at the end of chapter 6 in the book of Ezra. And when they started back rebuilding, it says they kept the Passover. That's the first time the Passover had been kept in about 70 years. And we'll talk about that just a little bit more before we take the Lord's Supper. So will you pray with me? Father, thank you very much for these truths. We pray that you would be working in our hearts, Lord. I want to pray for myself, Lord, that you would please help me, Father, in my own heart and life, Lord. Help me to be more focused and help me to be more compassionate and kind and help me to be um, less focused on self but more focused on others, Lord, break down pride in my own life that I see, selfishness in my life that I see. Lord, please be breaking it down, helping me to be more like your dear son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who might not know you yet that you would open their hearts, that they would believe, grant them repentance leading to life, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ who took the punishment for sinners when he shed his blood, died, was buried, rose again from the dead. We pray these things in his perfect name. Amen.